Hello, everyone. You're listening to Teaching Matters, an audio series exploring the unique needs of today's students. Teaching Matters is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. My guest for this program is Ulrich Bozer, who is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. We will be discussing his recently published book, Learn Better, Mastering the Skills for Success in Life, Business, School, or How to Become an Expert in Just About Anything. The book holds a 2017 copyright and is published by Rodale Books. The book is available from Rodale or other online outlets, and a link is provided in the text accompanying this podcast. Ulrich, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. So I really enjoyed reading your book. It was, uh, uh, before we get into the actual questions, there was a lot of great examples, both from you and examples that you've run across in your research. And and I guess for the listeners of the podcast, uh, you will learn a lot in reading the book. There's also just great examples that you can give meaning to. So so let's dig into uh, the, the the core message, really, that you're trying to get across in the book. As I, as I read it and looked at how you organized the chapters, it struck me that you're really trying to describe for readers a process through which uh, students not only learn, but how they can develop what we might call expertise in a given area. Can you kind of give a high-level overview of what that process is and and how it works? I think for a long time we've thought about this skill of learning to learn as simply a matter of intelligence, right? And that's what IQ tests are really supposed to measure, right? Our ability to reason through new problems. But what we've seen uh, over the past uh, few years and and decades really is a a great body of research looking at this skill of, of, of learning. And, and it turns out that skill learning really is this process. Uh, it's taking steps to see things as valuable as well as taking steps to review what you know. And, and the book tries to walk people through that uh, process as well as touching on some key themes around learning being a, a form of mental doing around the importance. Uh, and this is something that you've talked a lot about, Scott, social and emotional aspects uh, of learning and really tries to translate some of the work that's been done in universities uh, and colleges around the country to uh, audiences, which I think can really benefit in their own lives uh, and classrooms uh, from this from this research. You know, in, in your answer just then, you used uh, the term learning. Your book is also about expertise. D- do you distinguish between those, or is learning part and parcel of becoming an expert? Uh, do all learners become experts? I mean, I, I want to kind of untangle what those two words mean from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I see, you know, expertise as part of this process. And, you know, uh, even though I just finished up a a book on learning, I'm still learning a lot about this topic. You know, within days of this book being published, you know, I've seen uh, blog items that, you know, shift this debate. So, you know, expertise is sort of seen as this vaulted spot, but it's, uh, you know, something that is itself this, this process. I think it's also important to understand what is expertise itself. The example that I'd like to give, uh, also comes from the the radio world is the the car talk guys mm-hmm. you know click and click and clack and you know what's amazing about them is that you know they seemed so sort of goofy and they made their jokes but their level of expertise around cars was amazing I and mean, think about it, it's got you know people would call in and say you know i have a problem with my you know toyota tercel it's you know has a little smoke coming out from the engine the smoke is you know this color and there's this weird noise and without looking at the car right they were able to decipher you know 
what the issues were. And I think, you know, that is the goal. We're not going to reach that goal for all of us in uh, areas, whether it's, you know, knitting or, or cars. But, you know, there are certain strategies, programs, approaches that allow you to uh, learn better. So that, that's a really great example. And of course, as an NPR uh, affiliate, we love uh, that show. <laughs> and so, but, but really what you're describing when they're able to diagnose those problems with a the vehicle, they, they have a, a, a wealth of knowledge of facts and data um, that, that has come through their experience. And they're also able to quickly sort of recognize patterns. So your example with the Toyota and the smoke, you know, they have the data points about what they know about Toyota cars and what smoke looks like. Uh, and, and they recognize a pattern from a few, you know, a few sentences from a, a call-in uh, person. And, and is that really what experts are able to do is to sort of bring together um, facts and data with experience and draw insight from it? I mean, is that really sort of what an expert is able to accomplish? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, one of the interesting things that I've uh, seen uh, that, that I highlight in this book is, you know, there's now a, a definition for higher order thinking. I actually don't use the term higher order thinking in the book because I feel like it's a, a bit of jargon that's passed along a lot in the education world. And for a long time, I feel like, you know, we don't really have a really great definition of, of what that means, right? We we understand, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners understand, right? They're, they're teaching for more than just facts. But what do we mean by higher order thinking? And uh, Lindsay Rodenthal, who's at the, uh, excuse me, Richland, who's at the University of Chicago, has done some great work in this. And she really describes expertise or this higher order thinking as thinking about systems, thinking about analogies. And in this regard, the Car Talk guys are a great example, right? They don't see the car, but they're thinking of an analogy, right? They're thinking about their own experience with a Toyota Tercel that has white smoke. And you know, that allows them to diagnose that problem. And, you know, when we think about this idea, there are all sorts of ways to apply it, right? You know, you're really trying to get people a sense of thinking through systems, how do pairs um, work, what is compare and contrast. And I, I think it's really exciting that we now have this sense of, you know, what is higher order thinking and how can we uh, teach people to engage in that uh, expertise like thinking because in the end right that's what we want is as you mentioned right we not only want students to acquire facts right but we want them to acquire an ability to think about that uh, those those set of facts yeah let's let's shift gears just a little bit but still sort of setting the stage one of the themes that sort of navigates through your book but but as well in some of the other writings that you've done is that there's a lot of myths and misconceptions that guides how we tend to think about learning and expertise. I want to go through a couple of those and just have you sort of react to them and explain to listeners why you feel like those are misconceptions. So the first one I wanted to mention is that there is a there is a there is a assumption that people are born with a certain level of intelligence and perhaps even ability that will determine how well they do in school. Why is that a misconception? So you know, ability exists and it varies, but we also know that, um, and there's some very clear research on this, that IQ can shift over time and there are certain things um, that, that shift that. So reading to young children will increase IQ. Um, you know, breast milk uh, has a clear impact on IQ. And so I think we have to acknowledge that, um, you know, there are ways for uh, us to increase our intelligence in a way. And, and 
also in your book, you spend a lot of time talking about strategies that people can acquire that essentially extend that ability and, and, and performance. And I think that's an important point as well, right? Yeah, that's exactly exactly right. So there's a, a researcher in the Netherlands who've, who's found that metacognition of, or thinking about thinking, you know, knowing what you're knowing, asking yourself these types of questions, uh, is actually more important than than raw intelligence. And so you know, we have to acknowledge that you know talent exists, but there are ways to uh, boost that talent. There are strategies and approaches and and a process to learning that allow us to. Um, you know, acquire expertise at, at far uh, greater and, and better rates. Right. Uh, another misconception, uh, and this was popularized in, in several different uh, very popular books, that the amount of time that a person puts in will predict whether they reach a level of expertise. Is that is that sort of true or is that also a misconception? Yeah, it's, it's a misconception. I mean, time matters. Uh, expertise takes a lot of effort and, and devotion, but there are ways to, you know, increase our uh, learning and so that it's 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 far more effective. The book talks about this in great detail, but something like spacing out your learning over time, right? So making sure that the learning is distributed uh, can have a large impact on um, outcomes that are it's independent of the amount of time that you might put in. So working smart with your time is more important than just the gross amount of time that you actually put in. Uh, very well said. Yeah. Um, one of the points that you make in the book, and you and you made it elsewhere in your writings as well, you talk about the issue of learning styles. Now, reader, uh, all the listeners may not be 100% familiar with what learning style theory is. Maybe you could just briefly describe that and, and, and then talk about why you think that's a myth in, in terms of how we understand you know, how students learn or don't learn. So learning styles, uh, the, the theory states that people, students will have preferred modes of learning. So they might learn uh, visually better or uh, they might learn uh, physically better or uh, they might be uh, auditory learners. And what the research has, has made clear is that, you know, giving students a preference if they want to learn uh, cars you know, auditorily, um, even if that is their preferred method, is it's that this idea just sort of doesn't doesn't pan out. You know, people don't have these preferred methods. So what's important to keep in mind here is that you know students vary in their interests and curiosities and their abilities. But if a student says that they're um, a physical learner, that doesn't mean that everything should be presented to them uh, physically or that everything should be presented visually to a uh, visual visual learner. Yeah, I have to say that as a as a teacher who's been through a lot of training sessions on learning styles, I was always, you know, I, I always found myself conflicted because if you have a if you have a class of 25 students, you potentially have 25 different permutations of learning style preferences. And so what do you do with that? Right. <laughs> and it's, it's almost impossible for the teacher. But I think um, the way that you the way that you explain that in the book is really on point about it's really in my mind, and, and I think that, that you support this as well, it's really about the, the fit of the information with the content that's being learned and the experience that the student has that's far more important than maybe what a preference of theirs on a survey ends up being. That's exactly right. And like many myths, there are some grains of, of truth, right? I mean, student, the material, um, you know, should dictate what the uh, approach is going to be. And, and frankly, you know, when you really start to unpack learning styles, this makes sense. I mean, I, I 
think it would be very hard to become an expert in statistics if I just verbally explained it to you and you never actually, <laughs> you know, started to play with Excel or SPSS. Um, and then we also have to realize that there are different uh, encoding mechanisms to use the, the field, right? So that there are some things that will gain um, auditorily, right? So, you know, I'm lis listening to you and I'm, I'm gaining that way. And then, you know, we can pair that up with uh, a graphic or uh, some writing. And, and that's another way for me to encode that material. Uh, but that's a different idea, right? It's just saying that, you know, you're going to gain information in this one way and you're going to gain that information in another way. The idea of learning styles at its core, right, is that students have this preference and that should uh, what should dictate it. And instead, I think, you know, teachers and, and parents should acknowledge students have different interests and really then think about um, what the material is and what is the best way to relate that uh, material to the student, given their prior knowledge, given their interests. One last uh, misconception, and this actually is not directly out of your book, but it was from a recent article that you published um, through the Center for American po uh, Progress. You, you, your article focused on uh, the public's misconceptions about what effective teaching is. And I want to focus on your book for this discussion, but, but I thought that article was really fascinating. Is there, is there one takeaway that, that you would like to highlight of one of those misconceptions about great teaching that, that would stand out to you? I mean, in my mind, the really key takeaway, certainly for, for educators and, and people who care about teaching and learning, is that the public uh, really underestimates how much expertise there is in teaching. I think teachers sort of know this, right? They understand it is incredibly difficult to, to manage a, a class, uh, whether it's higher ed or, you know, or someone teaching uh, kindergarten. And when we ask people, you know, is it easy for a great teacher to teach any subject? Lots of people thought that that was true, but when we what we know about teaching is that it's you know very domain specific, right? That a, a math teacher who really knows how to engage students around fractions isn't easily going to be able to uh, teach a bunch of um, you know second graders uh, chemistry. And so I think you know this idea really shapes a, a lot of the way that we have education debates in this country. I think it's one of the reasons that people focus on politics uh, too much in the education space. I think it's one of the reasons that, frankly, we don't uh, pay and, and respect teachers enough. And um, I've just seen this happen so much over the years that I've been covering education. We really wanted to, to document it. And so we uh, did this survey. And, and I thought it, the findings were, were really quite, quite fascinating. Yeah, I did too. Um, and in and, and some ways sad, uh, but, but it, it's information that, as you pointed out at the conclusion of that article, is definitely actionable. And so the trick now is to get people to pay attention on what that action should be. Um, turning back to your book, um, you know, when I was reading the book, it's clear that you're trying to provide advice for varying audiences, mostly students, maybe, um, and certainly teachers and parents, but it also goes broader than that to people that, you know, have a career and that they're trying to develop expertise in their career. So I definitely got a sense that you're trying to speak to that audience, but I also felt like you were, through your own examples, trying to understand your own journey and expertise. So I kind of have a question about, you know, what were your varied motivations for writing the book and, 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 and how has it left you in terms of achieving what you were trying to achieve and getting the book published and what you're doing with it? Yeah, I've covered education issues as a writer for, for many years and the interest grew out of my own personal experience. I struggled a lot in school as a child. I repeated kindergarten. I uh, was in special education during uh, uh, my middle school years. Um, 
you know, I talk about the book about this um, experience that I had where uh, a psychologist wrote up a, a document. You know, she, I had no idea, but she was sitting in the back of a classroom. Uh, I was in, in fourth grade, and and in the span of 45 minutes, you know, I was one of those kids who you know couldn't read his homework, couldn't answer basic questions. They had to turn off the computer behind me because I was unable to to focus. And you know, I did uh, eventually acquire some of these learning to learn skills. Some of them uh, are ones that we I think you know can get our heads around like you know asking ourselves questions like do I really know this am I really confident about this information uh, but it really drove this interest in you know how people uh, acquire skills and and what are better ways to uh, engage and, and figure out ways of, of learning let's let's start to delve in on some more specific issues in your book I think you've done a really great job of sort of setting up um, what the focus of the book is on but let's talk about some of the meteor issues in there so in the chapter on value, which is one of the sort of steps in the process, if you will, you talk about this really interesting tension between a student's need for instruction and direction, and and potentially from a, a person that has a great deal of expertise providing that feedback, but also the student's need for freedom to be able to choose their own path through the information to learn it. When I read that, the, the word tension was sort of in big, bold letters for me because th- this tension does exist, and, and I think there's something really interesting about that tension that can result in a great learning environment. Would you describe it as a tension? And if not, or if so, what do you think the, the importance of that is? Yes, I would certainly describe it as a tension. I think anyone who's learned something, you know, is familiar with that tension, right? Where you're like, I just want to apply this in my own life. You know, just give me what I need to to know, uh, so that you know this is valuable to to me. Uh, we have a lot of evidence that suggests that direct instruction is a very powerful way to teach, right? And that's um, giving students a, a lot of guidance. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that you know students are going to be empowered and engaged by applying some of these um, ideas uh, or skills and practices to their to their own lives and so what are good ways to to um, navigate that tension really will depend on the the classroom of course but one thing that I think uh, is really interesting from this body of research is that we often think of uh, certainly from the teaching perspective you know what can we do to make uh, material more relevant to the student but what the research suggests is that what's really important is that relevance is a one-way street, right? And that relevance needs to come from the student towards the material. So, you know, if you're talking about uh, something that, you know, might not be particularly exciting and, you know, talking about, you know, high-level physics and you just kind of throw in mentions of, of boy bands because, you know, you think that might make your audience <laughs> laugh, like that's not going to be enough, right? You need to figure out ways that students can relate to that material uh, from their own experiences, right? Just telling them that the material is interesting, just uh, putting in pop culture references, uh, you know, isn't, isn't enough for uh, for students to really, uh, or learners of any type to, to really engage. When I first started teaching, we used clips on uh, VHS tape from friends to be able to do that. Uh, <laughs> it worked pretty well back in the day. I don't know if it does anymore. Uh, kind of delving more deeply on this issue of, of direct instruction and, and feedback, I thought really one of the, the, the great points in your book is, is when you talk about the importance of feedback and what that's actually helping the learner do, but but you get really specific in talking about what that feedback needs to accomplish in terms of helping them monitor details and that sort of thing. And in, in that chapter, you you had a really great example from your own life about um, your journey as a basketball hero, uh, and and so I wondered if you could talk about 
what feedback is, what makes it effective, and if you're a mentor to a student, what do you need to pay attention to to make sure that you're providing good feedback? Well, first, you know, I'm really excited that you called me a basketball hero. I don't, I don't know if I've ever been referred to uh, like that. But yeah, you know, I play in a, in a you know basketball league, and uh, you know, it's with other sort of you know beer-bellied middle-aged guys, and and you know, I realized uh, a couple of years ago that I was you know particularly sort of you know middle-aged and, and beer-bellied, and was like, okay, you know, I, I need to to get better. My wife and kids were away, so I was like, oh, you know, I should I should get a, a basketball tutor. And uh, ended up meeting this guy, Dwayne. He had uh, played with the Harlem Globetrotters. And what was amazing to me is how quickly I improved with just a little bit of feedback. And, you know, I think it's just so easy to underestimate this. Like, I'm going to point out that, you know, I've been covering education since the, you know, late 1990s. I wrote a book on learning uh, or at the time was writing a book on learning. And even for me, it was like, wow, you know, two or three classes. And, you know, I was uh, hitting shots a a lot better. I was doing a lot better. And I think it just really underscores how easy it is to uh, underestimate, you know, the the value of of feedback. And when we understand feedback, you know, we should really think about it as really part and parcel of instruction, right? It, it, it in some ways really is an instruction. And there's a lot more evidence now about what effective uh, feedback looks like um, and, you know, how important it is to, uh, to gaining uh, skills. Now, feedback doesn't just have to come from other people. Uh, you, you have another really great example in the book of the surgeon who uh, painstakingly monitored his own performance and the performance of his surgical team. And that wasn't about somebody else providing feedback, but it was about monitoring your own performance. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful story. This Canadian uh, brain surgeon um, just decided that he was just going to write down every mistake that occurred uh, in the operating room. And, and really nothing was too small. Uh, you know, even just sort of a miscommunication with, with one of the nurses was enough to go into this database. And what he found, you know, was one, some, uh, and he has this one account of a, a particularly uh, uncomfortable error where they uh, were doing brain surgery. I really like this story, so I'm just going to share it quickly. And they dropped a piece of someone's skull on the floor, and he just described, you know, how they had to go to the family and say, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry, you know, I, I have to inform you that we dropped a piece of the skull. We were able to clean it and, you know, get it back on. He said that, you know, they weren't that uh, mad at him largely because the surgery itself had had um, gone well. But this monitoring uh, improved his uh, performance significantly. And not only that, it improved his performance. Uh, performance over a long period of, of time. He uh, continued this monitoring for, for years. And, you know, that, um, you know, type of focus on mistakes, you know, allowed them to uh, reduce the, the uh, complications rates, reduce the, the death rates, also make interesting observations about his own practice. So he had always believed that newer members of the team might cause more mistakes. That turned out not to be true. Uh, not sure if that applies to other teams, but, you know, just really being able to reflect and, and see these types of mistakes. And I think we can, you know, all do this ourselves, right? Whether it's asking friends for some, you know, feedback from a a presentation or videotaping ourselves um, and then, you know, looking at that videotape and seeing what we uh, potentially, potentially did wrong. Yeah, it's interesting because when you look at the example of that surgeon, you, you, you see an expert and you quickly understand through your narration of, of his work that, what, one of the things that experts do really well is they're constantly being self-aware and they're constantly assessing their own performance uh, and, and they do so in fairly systematic ways. 
Yeah, the other thing is that, you know, what uh, experts do in their field is also that they don't, you know, lie to themselves, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what's interesting about the surgeon example, right, isn't that he didn't notice the mistakes before, right? I mean, he understood them as mistakes, but the act of of writing them down, of recording them, of, of using them as a, as a bit of data is really important. And uh, there are other examples of this. Uh, Pat Metheny, who's a, a famous jazz guitarist, will just write down some notes after every performance, you know, just reflecting, thinking back, like, what could I, what, what could I do better? So, what I, I think is important about this uh, is not just simply monitoring, like, how am I doing, but actually then taking some steps either to solicit uh, feedback from, you know, colleagues or uh, instructors or just, you know, writing uh, these things down and, and making sure that we uh, really sort of think about how we could do better. We're speaking with Ulrich Bozer today about his book, "Better uh, Learn Better, Mastering the Skills for Success in Life, Business School, or How to Become an Expert in Just About Anything. Before the break, we were talking about the importance of feedback. One of the other points you make, Ulrich, in the book is that experts learn how to build relationships, which, uh, you know, to say that you build relationships can mean a lot of different things. What do you mean by it in the book, and why is it so important to learning? So... When we talk about relationships, right, what's really important is that, you know, knowledge or expertise is really a, a system of, of understanding, right? It's able to, to see nuances. And um, this is really a, a growing uh, area in the field of the, the learning sciences, trying to think about, you know, how we think about systems, how we think about relationships as a way to improve um, learning. Uh, you know, I got really interested in this idea and, you know, it had been documented in history been documented in math you know i thought oh you know it'd be fun to to look at something a little bit more lighthearted like uh wine it's not an area that i have much expertise in but i took a, a wine pairing course and you know it really gave me a sense of you know when you think about things and how they interact together right so why does a sweet wine um you know go well with spicy food it makes you think more about the underlying uh substance of of that idea whether it's you know wine or, or physics uh or learning to uh you know to to play soccer. Yeah, I think that um, that's, I've often thought that when I made the switch from being sort of a average to below average learner to all of a sudden not becoming an expert learner, but, but getting better grades and better performance, I think that it was the, it wasn't an aha moment, but I started to see big pictures about things. Is, is that phrase big picture sort of a way of understanding what relationships are? Yeah, I mean, big picture is one way of thinking about it, right? And I think it's a way of kind of stepping back and and seeing those uh, relationships. You know, analogies, you know, is another way of of thinking uh, about it. Um, And that, you know, analogies allow us to to think about, you know, categories and and allow us to think about how things are are the same and and different. So I think the the big picture is important because you're taking that moment to see, okay, what's the complexity here? Uh, But then also going a little bit further and, and saying, you know, how are these ideas, you know, different? And and this is important for, you know, uh, education is important for, for teachers, you know, th- using this type, these types of analogies uh, isn't, isn't for the lighthearted, right? You need to think about what is the, the source analogy, right? So cuts like a knife is, is a great analogy because we're all pretty familiar with uh, knives, but then there are all sorts of analogies that don't work very well. Uh, comedians use them all the time, right? So, you know, think about uh, comparing uh, Barack Obama to Mount Kilimanjaro. It's just it's an analogy that doesn't work and, and usually provokes a little bit of a, a, a chuckle. So uh, this analogical thinking, uh, systems thinking is, is really important to uh, developing expertise. 
In that chapter, you also talk about the idea, again, to help build relationships, that it's, it's, it's really important when you're providing instruction and experiential learning for students to vary the examples that they're working on. And you use a couple mathematical examples, but, but I think that your point is, is that when you're learning a skill or a concept, that if you only learn it from you know, a singular or a set of very similar examples, it's hard to build those relationships. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and to a degree, we know this in, intuitively, right? That um, you know, I might not have a great sense of what a dog is if I've only come across two dogs. But if I go to a dog show and I start seeing like a pit bull and a poodle and a mastiff, I'm like, wow, there is a big spread of what people call dogs. Some of these look cute, some of them look kind of uh, funny. But I start to get a sense of, well, actually, it, something can be a dog without really having a significant tail, as in the case of a, a boxer. Uh, so we can apply this in our own lives, not only to, to dogs, of course, but you know, varying examples and, and making sure that we do that in a very discreet way. So uh, people have a tendency when they practice, and, and I'm going to go back to the basketball example, uh, you know, they, they want to block their learning. So uh, one example, if I was trying to get better at, at basketball, I might shoot you know, all my three-pointers on one day and all my jump shots on another day and all my foul shots uh, on another day and, and block out maybe an hour for each one. Uh, but the evidence is, is pretty clear that I should be doing a, a few three-pointers and a few uh, foul shots and, and a, a few jumpers uh, all in, in that one day and, and jumble up the learning on each of those days. And that's a, a easy way for me to vary my practice. And, and by doing that type of varying, I'm going to have a better sense of exactly how to flick my wrist uh, in that example. And, and this is true um, you know, for, for math. This type of interleaving is, is how the researchers call it, um, uh, shows up in, in quite a few other fields as, as, as well. So based upon um, the details that you outline in your book that includes varying examples and that sort of thing, it seems to me that as a teacher, when I pick up your book and read it, there's a lot of really good nuggets in there that I could immediately start deploying in my classroom. So as you think about the, the, the toolkits that you provide in the book, as well as the accompanying uh, explanation, what's some of the advice that you would give to teachers that are really trying to change their game with how they're influencing their students' lives? Yeah, so I'm, you know, for this conversation, you know, uh, and given the, the level of expertise of the audience, going to focus a little bit on some of the research that's come out of the, the memory field. I feel like for all sorts of reasons, you know, um, the work that's being done on, on how people remember has not been translated very well into teaching. So one is the example that we just talked about, the importance of interleaving, of, of jumbling up examples. Uh, I have a third grader at home, and it is remarkable to me how much uh, focus there is when she's learning multiplications on, on learning uh, her times tables, you know, all the nines, all the eights, all, all the sevens, um, when she's going to, to gain a lot more uh, and really so much research on mixing up those examples. Uh, another really important idea, again, coming from the memory research is the idea of spacing out your learning. So the more that you can distribute your learning um, over time, uh, the more that you, you learn. My favorite example uh, here is, um, let's say for an example, and, and I'm going to pose this question for you, you want to go on uh, vacation, you want to leave Ohio uh, and, and go to Bolivia, and you want to brush up on your Spanish, and you want to uh, do that by you know using some flashcards. And this is a study that, that Nate Cornell did. You know, And I'm going to uh, pose this question to you. You can either use uh, a stack of 100 flashcards, right, or you could uh, take that stack and, and 
and and um, put it into four stacks of 25. But once you've finished a, a set of 25, um, you know, you, you can't revisit that stack. And so what, what would you do? How, how would you make that uh, decision? Which um, way would you go? Would you go for the, the big stack or the four small stacks to uh, yeah, I would, polish I, up? I would probably go with the four small stacks. Yeah, so a lot of uh, students uh, vote that way too. And what turns out to be the case is that actually concentrates your learning, right? It's a way of actually blocking uh, your learning. Uh, the bigger stack you're going to, you know, if the word is abolito, you're going to come across it um, you know, less frequently. Uh, and so it's a way of distributing your learning. In Nate Cornell's study, uh, some students uh, gained 30% more, right, in this uh, simple uh, vocabulary example uh, when they used the, the larger stacks. Uh, so, you know, there's all sorts of ways that we know that we should, you know, space our learning and, and we can do it in, in many ways. The context is, of course, going to change, right? If, if we're always revisiting information, uh, students, you know, might get bored but anything we can do not to cram, not to really concentrate our learning is, is something that, you know, educators can, can really encourage. You know, I, I have to tell you, you just gave me a really bad flashback to studying for the GRE. So. <laughs> <laughs> I had those cards. I hope that I hope that I um, actually subdivided them, but I, I have a feeling that I just busted through a big stack. Well, that, uh, that's great. You know, Nate Cornell actually came across this idea because he was, you know, walking across the UCLA campus and he would see students with just, you know, three or four flashcards. And, then, and, he, and uh, you probably remember this from studying your GREs, right? There were then those students who would, you know, use rubber bands around these huge <laughs> sets of flashcards. And he was like, well, I wonder if that you know, that uh, makes a difference in it. And it turns out it makes a significant one. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So I I was really fascinated from my background in communication when you were talking about the um, effect of technology on learners. And it's not, you know, there are a few places in your book where you where you highlight this. And Actually, the, it, it may have been in the introduction uh, where, where I was most fascinated by this because you talked about how, because of our smart devices, um, essentially we're able to offload facts that in a different time we would have, you know, had to carry around in our brain, and that would have been very valuable to us. But now we pull our phones out of our pockets and find really whatever facts we need. But there was a statement that you made. In, in, in that paragraph where you said, essentially, as a result, facts have lost a lot of their value. What, what do you mean by that? And what do you think the implications are? Yeah, so the offloading is, is a fascinating uh, idea and, and some interesting work has been done on it showing that people um, will, if they know that something else is going to remember something, uh, they're less likely to remember it. And so we see it with our, our cell phones is, uh, is, is one example. Uh, many of us do this with our spouses, right? We're sort of like, oh, you know, I, I know that my wife is going to, you know, remember so-and-so's birthday. And so, uh, and if you're told that information, it, it turns out that you're less likely to to remember it. As to the facts have lost a lot of their meaning, right? I mean, I think we have this uh, all familiar with it. You know, we can Google just about uh, anything uh, right now. And so that makes facts less important. I think it's really important to note, though, that it's um, easy to go too far here. And I think some people have said, oh, you know, that means we shouldn't you know, teach students, um, you know, these types of uh, basic content and skills. And I think, you know, this debate between knowledge and and skills is is a little too narrow. We have to really acknowledge that facts also allow higher order thinking, but we need to make sure that we're teaching and and learning in a way that uh, allows us to really gain in, in that way. You know, when I, when I read that, the reason why it, um, it peaked, um, an emotion for me is that I think that, 
I, I, first of all, I think you're absolutely right in the way you describe it. But, but I think one of the implications from my perspective as a communication person is that when we view facts as being something that does not have to be in our brains, it starts to influence how we have dialogue with others because our dialogue doesn't rest upon those facts. So in my background in academic debate, you know, we had to carry around our evidence and be able to pull a card out at any moment, you know, to answer an argument from another person. And, and that constituted our facts. Now it seems to me that discourse doesn't have that level of rigor, perhaps for that reason, that, that we don't have to worry about carrying the facts around. Yeah, that's true. We don't have to worry about carrying the facts uh, around. But uh, let me give you this example. Uh, I'm going to say to you, haben Sie heute gefrühstückt? Right? If you don't know German, it is very hard to understand what I just said, which is simply sort of, you know, had you did you have breakfast this morning? And I'm going to be honest that it is very easy for you to take each one of those words and, and Google them. There's, you know, German Leo. It's a wonderful site for that. The way your mind works, though, is that, you know, even if we can Google and, and get that information quickly, we, we need it um, at hand and, you know, more complicated forms of, of thought or even answering some basic uh, polite questions about breakfast, you know, do continually depend on having uh, a rich level of, of knowledge. So uh, I want to conclude by saying that, uh, again, I really enjoyed your book, and I think that it's a great read for uh, really just about anyone, but I think people that are really particularly interested in, in the learning process, people that are interested in trying to help their children, uh, classroom teachers who are trying to understand how to become a better mentor, great takeaway messages for all of them. I also think that uh, I would hope that academic administrators and public policy uh, people would, would take a moment to read some of the advice you have. So I really appreciated that. I, I actually want to end with a question about your role as a public intellectual. You're a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and you focus specifically on issues related to education. I wonder if you can kind of conclude um, our discussion today by, you know, giving us your high-level pattern thinking about what you think some of the um, significant issues are that's facing U.S. education and what we need to do about it? I think my answer is, is twofold. I think, one, you know, we need to focus more on improving teaching and, and learning, and that's going to be, you know, making sure uh, students have these, um, a sense of, you know, this approach of, of, of having these uh, skills, of having the ability to learn to learn. I think we've also become too focused on some of these policy debates over, you know, vouchers or not vouchers, uh, MOOCs or not MOOCs uh, for the higher ed folks, you know, should we have um, school boards or or not, and really focus on, you know, how are we going to give uh, teachers the tools that they need? I think, you know, when we do look at certainly at Washington uh, right now and today with the Trump administration um, proposing to, to roll back uh, education funding, you know, I think that that's really incredibly short-sighted. Uh, a lot of evidence about how education helps the economy, how uh, it helps us uh, grow as individuals, how it helps uh, careers, and you know these types of, of budget cuts uh, that we're seeing uh, really make uh, very little little sense. So, uh, you know, we can have these uh, debates about you know learning, but if we if we don't have some real robust funding for it, um, you know, we're going to be uh, flat-footed. 
Ulrich, I really appreciate you being a guest on Teaching Matters and really appreciate the points that you make, not only in your book, but your other writings as well. And uh, wish you the best of luck as you carry this advocacy forward. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I learned a lot from from this conversation and grateful uh, for your time and, and expertise. Very good. Mr. Bozer's book, Learn Better, is available from Rodale Books and is available through many online booksellers. As, and you can also follow the link in the text provided with this podcast. Uh, uh, and, and we really appreciated the opportunity to not only review the book, but have a great dialogue about it. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced and recorded in the studios of WUB Public Media. You can always listen at wub.org backslash perspectives. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich, and I'm Scott Titsworth. Special thanks to Timothy Vickers of Ohio University Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program on behalf of WUB Public Media. Thank you for listening and have a great day.